What's up, everyone? This is Josh Feigren, and you're listening to Between Movements. Hello and welcome to another episode of Between Movements. Today I'll be talking with Tony Park. Some might say that Tony is an identity-confused, busy freelancing musician in New York City. As a clarinetist, saxophonist, conductor, arranger, educator, and a repair technician, he is hell-bent on figuring out the meaning of being a professional musician in today's industry. Whether it's teaching his adult students at Queens College, or fixing a flute used and abused by a middle schooler, or premiering a nearly impossible solo bass clarinet piece, Tony questions everything he does with near-skeptic caution and strives to deliver the goods on all fronts. During the program, I'll be playing a couple of pieces which Tony features in as a performer. I know Tony from my time at Queens College, and I'm happy to have him on Between Movements today. Right, so ethnic identity and classical music, that's an interesting one. Well, you're Korean. Were you born in Korea or were you born in Canada? I was actually born in um, upstate New York, Buffalo, New York, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but then when I was two months old, my family relocated to Korea, where I grew up until I was 13, Mm -hmm. and then I moved to Canada. So actually, in high school, I wrote an essay... We're, I think we're learning about the national identity or something. Right. And we were supposed to talk about our national identity. And I flat out wrote that I felt very confused because I didn't know what mine was. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Because obviously at that point, you know, I had already kind of spent my formative years in Canada uh, away from Korean society. But obviously I don't. I just look like a Korean person without mm-hmm. all the, I guess, the true Korean mannerisms. And especially here, it's interesting being here. Here, you mean in New York? Yeah, sorry, being in New York. As soon as I was kind of assimilated into certain Korean gig circuit, I was suddenly Korean, like more Korean than I've ever been. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter how I feel, like it's kind of more what they see that I am. So, I mean, it kind of worked in my favor in certain ways, especially financially. I got a, my, like literally 99.9% of my teaching is teaching Korean students. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't always like that, but it just, at some point, just kind of turned that way. Right. Yeah, and I get, I do get uh, quite a bit of Korean gigs, but yeah, I feel kind of funny about that because... Do you feel like you were kind of pulled into that? Yeah, at some point, definitely. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I was a big part of that, for sure. But I'm not the only one. I, I mean, there are other people who are exactly in the same boat as me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. so that affected, like, the kind of music you're playing as well? Like, are you expected to play Korean music? I mean, for certain events, they, you know, of course, they play Aryang and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this otherwise, but they're kind of using their Korean identity as a uh, leverage to hold events so that they can perform and whatnot. So. Right. Yeah, that's why, like, they need me, <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> other people like me. So 
Yeah, that's an interesting one for me because, well, I'm mixed race. Yeah. Being half Filipino, half Jewish. And Mm -hmm. the Jewish side, well, my dad, his parents were sort of agnostic. Although all his cousins had bar mitzvahs, he never had a bar mitzvah. He never went to Hebrew school. And, of course, I didn't. So I feel like I didn't really fit into that category. Yeah. And then the Filipino side... You know, my mom left and she's in America and I, I sort of grew up away most of the time away from her family. Yeah. When I was about, I think, 11, mm-hmm. moved away and never really had any connection to that as well. So it's an interesting thing. <laughs> right. But you, so you have American citizenship? Yeah, I have American and Canadian I used to have um, American and Korean, but I needed to give it up in order to not be enlisted in the army, Korean army, mm-hmm. at a certain age. So, yeah, American, Canadian, and also somehow Korean. I mean, I look completely Korean. The reason why I mentioned being an Asian musician in white classical music, it's just a topic that's been on my mind a lot lately. Not just in the classical community, but you know, in the world, they talk about you know, your identity in so many ways, and they talk about uh, topics like cultural appropriation. And I was just wondering at some point, like, what music can I play? And, like, is it okay for me to play? And uh, what music uh, can I convincingly play, or am I overthinking it? But I'll give you an example. So, Mm -hmm. as you know, I've been subbing on the Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof, the off-Broadway production. And the the show is completely in Yiddish. Uh, every song, every dialogue, everything, every line is in Yiddish. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm a clarinetist, and there's um, on-stage part for me as well, as well as, um, you know, in, in the pit. So I have to be on stage. I have to move around, memorize mm-hmm. choreography and playing. And I have to play, like, uh, the wedding scene, right? So I have to play, like, a uh, klezmer musician. I'm a klezmorn, as they say in mm-hmm. Yiddish. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot about this, you know. And, <laughs> and first of all, I was so in awe that they would ask me to, you know, sub the main guy. My friend Cecil, he's the uh, clarinetist and the former contractor for that uh, production. And I was like, wow, these people are so cool about this. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to serve the music, serve the production. And I guess they liked me enough to keep me around. But I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. The first time my wife came to see the show, mm-hmm. she told me when I walked on the stage, there were these older uh, ladies around her that confusingly, you know, rushed back to their program. And they kind of looked down, looked up, looked down, looked up. And they're like, look, they're looking at me. They're like, Dimitri Zizel Slapovich? <laughs> and they were so, you know, they were so confused because <laughs> they didn't include my name as a sub. I mean, that's not a normal thing that they do. Yeah, that's like the most Jewish name ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So obviously, you know, people are not colorblind, but in a way, they are in hiring me. And so I, I think that's a very kind of a New York thing. I don't know if that would be like that in other places as much, but I guess nowadays, I mean, I see like Korean people singing Italian operas in like Italian opera houses. So I don't know. It's an, it's an issue that's been around. I think it's not a new issue. Right. Because when the Jews were in Europe, Uh 
there was that whole racial clash too because they were playing music that really wasn't theirs. Yeah. And I right, mean, that's if you right. if you look at any classical orchestra now, uh-huh. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> common knowledge that there's a predominance of Asians in yeah. in the field at this moment. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I think it was Itzhak Perlman who I was listening to an interview with. There's a sort of a stereotype that Asians play mechanically. And I yeah. think it's partially due to the education system in uh-huh. places like China, Korea, and Japan. It tends to be highly, highly technical, perhaps yeah. overly technical. Yeah. What's interesting is that those same complaints were made of Jewish musicians in Europe historically. Mm. And over time, it became sort of the opposite where the Jews began to dominate and you know Horowitz, Heifetz, all these yeah. great names, Itzhak Perlman, you know, they're known to be the greats. So I think times change and it's something that I talked about in class actually. We had talks about cultural appropriation. I don't know <laughs> where where to draw the line. You know, I played in a Jamaican African American church. I played their reggae's and their calypsos. I don't look like them. Yeah. So I thought about this a lot, and so there's this composer named Lee Sang Yoon, mm-hmm. or Yoon Lee Sang. He was a Korean composer that was, I, I believe, uh, predominantly educated in Japan, and then he went to Germany and Paris to study. So his music, you know, was kind of the days of post-serialism, and so the way I see it, I don't think he was all that interested in um, Korean t- traditional music right. until, I guess, he kind of had to market it for himself globally. So he, obviously, he didn't really study traditional Korean music, but he does adapt these idiomatic techniques in various instruments to evoke the sounds of Korean folk instruments and Korean style of singing, you know, using sharp articulations followed by, like, vib- wide vibrato and mm-hmm. all these things. and. Yeah, you should look him up because his life is very interesting because he um, he was kidnapped by the South Korean Secret Service and then, he I mean, he's from South Korea and then was abducted to South Korea. Yeah, while he was in Germany, he actually uh, spent the rest of his life in North Korea, kind of serving the North Korean like propaganda and <laughs> stuff like that. So. How do you spell his name? Lee Sang-yoon, so I-S-A-N-G, mm-hmm. Y-U-N. Yeah, his music is really great. I, I admire him a lot. So I, I was wondering, like, how he would have felt, especially back then, you know? Right. I mean, it seemed like he was very revered by his contemporaries, like European contemporaries. So he must have been super legit. And I mean, most of them didn't seem to have problem with him composing in their Western classical music idiom. Well, from a Korean composer who uses the Western classical idiom to a performer who uses it, let's hear one of Tony's tracks. This is the prelude from the Bach Cello Suite Number 1. It will be played on bass clarinet by Tony Park.
Anyway, so I was thinking if I were more Korean than I am, and if someone played quote unquote Korean style music, like how would I feel? Like someone that's not Korean, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand cultural appropriation because I feel like I don't really have a strong cultural identity. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, I relate to you, but I think, personally, people are way too easily offended about these things, at least in our country. From my experience, when I was at the Jamaican church, they loved Uh it. They loved that I learned those rhythms. Some of them told me, man, when I close my eyes and listen to you, I couldn't tell if you were not Jamaican. (laughs) Right, right, right. To me, that's a compliment. Yeah, Um, absolutely. They didn't take it as wrong. I mean, if you're trying to make fun of it, that's another yeah. thing. If you're taking inspiration from it, that's another. Like, you could take something as simple as cooking or food. Like, when yeah. I cook, I try to make different dishes from different places because I like it. I like the variety. Mm-hmm. Same with music. I like listening to music from a variety of places. So, personally, I don't like being told that I can't play something or do something because I'm not one of them. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the conclusion that I've been kind of, you know, circling around that if you play the style of music, whatever style of music with the best intentions Mm -hmm. and after only after extensive research and uh, training, I think it's okay. You know, if people like it. That's fine. But there's always going to be people. I mean, yeah, that's don't like it. That's right. You're always going to make somebody mad. But that's like with anything. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. please everybody, right? You're right, right. Um, but that, that's not just other cultures. Even within same culture, people will be offended, you know? Oh, like yeah. Debussy offended these French people and Stravinsky offended these people, you mm-hmm. know? It's, mm-hmm. So it's bound to happen no matter, no matter what you do. <laughs> There's going to be people who don't like what you're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, all we can do is play with the best intentions right the best intentions and and i mean life is so diverse there are so many cultures it's so beautiful to me finding out about new cultures that's so cool right yeah and right now we have more resources than ever so we have no excuse to not uh do our best in researching uh, if we want to uh pursue you know there's a piece by wc he was influenced in the paris world fair when he heard indonesian gamelan for the first time right and he wrote this piece pagode it's based on gamelan but if you hear gamelan it really doesn't sound like that it's he used the pentatonic scale (laughs) yeah Yeah, it sounds nothing like it yet i think it's a beautiful piece of music and i play it yeah so am i not going to play it because it's not correctly appropriating the culture you know what i mean yeah no absolutely It, it can get so confusing yeah. So, do you miss certain aspects of being a musician in Canada or Korea as opposed to mm. New York City? Well, I actually immigrated to Canada before I could be uh, like a professional musician. Mm. I mm. actually became a professional musician like here in New York. Yeah, mostly. I had like little gigs here and there in Canada, but and then I went back to Canada for a year and then I did some gigs. I miss my family, you know, extended family in Korea, and I miss my immediate family in Canada. But I did find that Canadian music scenes are more hierarchical. So I'm not trying to be cynical. By the way, 
I think often people mistake me for a cynical person, but I'm just, you know, I think I'm just a realist. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was going to say, I think basically in Canadian music scenes, uh, you're kind of a nobody unless you're a veteran in the scene, you mm-hmm. know, through like university circuit or something, or you play in the symphony. Mm. Yeah. So in that regard, I don't really miss being a professional. Oh, of course, I'm talking strictly about classical music. But here, yeah, I, I find, again, like culturally and musically, I feel more fulfilled and more um, like a part of a more egalitarian musical society. So. so I lived in New York for just over five years mm-hmm. working as a musician. Yeah. I, I always joked with people saying that to me, living in New York City was like being in an abusive relationship <laughs> because... <laughs> yeah. One one day, you just love it. You love everything about it. You love the food and the culture and everything there is. And then the next day, you're stuck in gridlock traffic and you spend yeah. an hour trying to find parking. And, you know, the subway breaks down and the air conditioning isn't working. What to you are some of the best and worst parts of living in, in New York City? Oh, man. I think, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's an emotional question, but... Well, like like you said, like I mean, you can find such good food from all around the world at reasonable prices if you mm-hmm. go to the right places. But musically speaking, I mean, you're surrounded by so many good musicians from all kinds of walks of life. You know, not just orchestral, not just this, but people who have kind of walked all of them. You know, so I I like that a lot because for me, I never really felt that my musical goals or my musical desires or like outlook was never really typical I guess you know mm-hmm. it's, I, I just had too many interests and I thought maybe I should kind of squash them to be more serious musician but here you know if you just look around there's so many people just like me and have actually done all those things and more you know mm. so I really love that I mean I'm sure those, there are people like that other places too it's just that there are more <laughs> here, you know. You're talking so, about sort of diversification of... Yeah, diversification in different jobs in music, but also um, styles, not just classical. Because most clarinet players I know, they just play clarinet, like classical clarinet. Mm. It's funny, I, I literally was just talking about this with my friend who I did the last podcast with, and we were saying it's it's sort of seems to be more and more important actually to be able to diversify as a musician today because uh i mean the industry has changed Mm -hmm. if you can't do multiple things it's kind of hard to get work at least i've noticed that yeah i mean at least if you want to be known or if you want to stay relevant Mm -hmm. i'm just going to give an example like my teacher charles nidig uh like when i was growing up i thought he was just a soloist just teaches at juilliard no he teaches at like five different schools right you know and he's touring constantly not just performing but coupled with master classes uh, endorsement for this and that and he's a great conductor too yeah he's a great conductor also a great composer a great editor of music it's not always what it seems you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so if you really dig deep enough so i think it's just natural you know there are certain steps that you have to take to make certain things happen for yourself and there's no shame in that i feel like for so long people you know especially uh, in the classical realm they're like practice and audition and do competitions and you you'll be you know that's how you make a career but 
I mean, if you want that career, sure. I mean, but <laughs> you know, but nowadays, but that's not even guaranteed. I mean, what yeah. are you gonna do as a backup? How are you gonna how are you gonna manage it? Yeah, right. Honestly, nowadays you're gonna kind of you're gonna burn out. I think if you just do that. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, but there's really no pay in that, so you should find out their revenues. Yeah, there's there's almost no pay, and the work yeah. required to do it. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, the amount of work you put in and the pay that you get out of it. And also, there's not even that much demand anymore. You know, sadly, no. And it's just you know, it's a shift in、uh, interest, and it might come back, it might not. But I think through YouTube and through different platforms、uh, of exposure, you have so many the resources at your fingertips. So yeah. You know, and so many people who are not, you know, at the liberty of accessing all these things, you know, just Google it or like YouTube it, and then、mm-hmm. it'll come up. And whatever you can possibly think of, you can listen to. Yeah. You know, and if you don't know something,、um, I remember being in high school. I was just discovering rock music. This I, I was so sheltered, you know, like because my parents said rock music is you know devil's music, so I didn't listen to it for a long time. And when I kind of Said to myself, you know, I I think I need to discover this for myself. <laughs>、right. So I kind of,、right. you know, secretly discovered classic rock music. But I also went through a lot of bad music to get through,、mm-hmm. uh, to get to what I really like listening to. So if you go to my room right now in my parents' place, you'll see CDs from Christian Rock, Avril Lavigne, you know, Backstreet Boys, <laughs>、uh, Queensrÿche, Megadeth,、mm-hmm. um, Miles Davis. You know, yo yo my, just like just the most random, you know. Yeah, same, the same here. This was actually like right before YouTube, so I I was kind of studying Wikipedia actually and actual encyclopedias. I don't know if people read those anymore, but I don't know why. But you're not the only one who said this, and I remember、mm-hmm. feeling this way. Like I should sort of squash that and just focus in. Maybe it's something in the way our institutions teach us that make it seem like we need to focus in on just one thing. Yeah. Where I remember a friend telling me, which made a lot of sense. Yeah. If you look at someone like Leonard Bernstein, you know, one of the greatest conductors,、mm-hmm. he was interested in all kinds of Latin music, and he incorporated、oh, that.、Yeah. He was interested in Indian ragas and. He's most well known for being a classical conductor, but he also、yeah. did, you know, his Broadway stuff and composed. Oh yeah, I think, in my humble opinion, I think he was a better composer than a conductor. <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, he, I think, he was a like a fabulous educator. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. I don't think there's any denying in that. He's just a brilliant man. He was a great conductor too, but. His music is actually, I think, highly underrated. I mean, West Side Story is great. I mean, if you analyze that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even though those songs are super famous, if you get a chance to play those songs, it's really remarkable. The style is his own.、Mm-hmm. Of course, he borrows from Latin music, American、oh, yeah. music, whatnot, but he does it so well. You know? Yeah, the back to the whole cultural appropriation thing. I mean, he did、yeah. it very tastefully. Why do you think? There's that view or that narrative that we need to stick to one thing. Where does that come from? I think partially because teachers want the best for their students, and so they just kind of want them to focus on one thing, so that they have the advantage of spending focusing a lot of time on one thing, so that they might get ahead. 
of other people who might be less focused. I think it's kind of a like a more old school thinking, but I remember when I came to Queens College, Michael Mossman, the then uh, jazz department director and also big band director, he knew right away that I was interested in jazz music and I actually auditioned and joined a, a big band there. I think he thought I was a little bit odd because probably I was the only clarinetist in many years, if ever, that approached him. <laughs> you know, a classical mm-hmm. clarinetist studying with Charles Nydig, showing up and hey, like, I want to learn jazz. So he really helped me out. But um, he told me it's a traditional New York thing because he was actually, he went to Oberlin for anthropology, just like Charles Nydig went to Yale for anthropology. They didn't get any music degrees. Oh, wow. And, and Yo-Yo Ma doesn't have a music degree, you know. Uh, Hanna Chang doesn't have a music degree. <laughs> you know, wow. these people, yeah. I actually and, didn't know any of that. Yeah, but they... They have many interests, and music was one of them. And I mean, it's almost the opposite. It's like the more you expand your horizons, the more your music can grow and flourish. Right. So in that way, their interests were pure. You know. So, in a way, it's it's almost backwards. Like I get what you're saying about it being sort of an old school mentality, uh-huh. but it's really not. Because if you look at some old school guys like Oscar Peterson, one of the great jazz pianists, he studied his Chopin etudes and he was classically trained. Um, a lot That's of true. great jazz musicians started out classical. But yet I've experienced the same thing you have at, in fact, all the schools I've been to trying to break into the jazz realm as well. Yeah. I was sort of given these weird glances like, what are you doing? You're a classical pianist. Yeah. Made me feel weird. (laughs) Yeah. But before this podcast, I was thinking about these questions and I realized basically in the end, you know, you kind of have to do your own duty of surrounding yourself, seeking out and surrounding yourself with the right people. You know, Mm -hmm. there are going to be people who don't agree with you and that doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just how they see the world, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to become something, especially in the field of music where there are no right answers, you have to keep just you just have to keep surrounding yourself with the right people. Right. I guess the counter argument to this would mm-hmm. probably be information overload. Oh yeah. Which is a real thing for sure. Uh-huh. If you're interested in so many things and you spread yourself too thin you might not really be good at anything. Yeah. But the way I I approach that with my own students is I make sure that their fundamentals are very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Their technique, their approach to music, their ears, how they listen. I think if you have really strong fundamental understanding, you can branch it out into many areas. I think that's true. I've heard, because I'm actually trying to branch out and doubling tender age of 30. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but anyway... Um, I've heard that it's good to have strong foundation in one instrument before you branch out into other instruments. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I, I mean, I've seen it and I've seen the other case too, where they just kind of learn a lot of instruments at the same time. But either way, if you work hard, even if you, you know, start all instruments at the same time, if you work on your fundamentals, like you said, you're going to be solid. Right. You, you know, and your teaching methods are going to be solid, you know, because you, you know your fundamentals. So. so now that you are 30 and I am almost 30 and kind of looking back at everything. Yeah. Is there anything that you would do different or that you would change? So 
coming out of high school, right before graduating high school and going into university, I, again, going back, you know, about like squashing my main interests for, you know, one thing, especially to get into university, because I have to, use a, you have to kind of choose an instrument, choose a major and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of actually torn between applying for jazz bass mm-hmm. and and classical clarinet. And at really? that point, yeah, because in high school, I actually barely played any clarinet. Oh. In middle school, I played a lot of clarinet, but then I was actually playing more um, bass, upright bass, electric bass, and electric guitar, guitar, whatever. Yeah. I played more electric guitar in high school as well, and middle school. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually played guitar basically as long as I have played clarinet huh. up, up to that point. And then I kind of... I moved away and I didn't have my guitars. But So I regret not pursuing both because my passion for both styles, I think I was actually much more passionate about jazz music. Mm. But um, I think that, that, that would have been enough for me to focus on both. And they are actually different enough, like jazz bass and classical clarinet, that I could have strong fundamentals on both. Whereas it might be a little bit different story if I was if I were trying to focus on jazz saxophone and classical clarinet at the same time, yeah, because the embouchure is just different enough that it'll it'll kind of be more difficult to divide the two. That's interesting. Yeah, so I would have liked to listen to my instincts more and seriously uh, studied um, jazz and clarinet because, I mean. Even now, I'm taking jazz saxophone lessons. I'm, I'm learning flute. I'm trying to teach myself bassoon. It's really hard. But when I'm doing these things, so many people have told me, you know, oh, if you learn saxophone, you say bye to your beautiful classical embouchure and your sound. <laughs> but actually, they have no idea what they're talking about because right. you learn so many things. Maybe the same things, but in different ways and you apply them in different contexts and then you learn oh i can use this much air here too you know you you learn different ways of using your embouchure and oh actually my embouchure can do more than just this and i can use that in classical playing too so i've learned so much trying to double and also playing different um, styles you know fiddler and uh, big bands and playing a korean pop Mm-hmm. saxophone band so mm-hmm. as Nidic said do everything <laughs> you know like really if you follow your instinct with the best intentions and you just follow your interests and work hard yes i think everything's just gonna connect at some point and it's just gonna benefit each other i don't i mean of course sometimes it's hard yeah like it takes me a little while to get back into my jazz saxophone embouchure if i haven't practiced in a week or a few days or going from clarinet to flute is really hard. But, you know, that's something that you work on. It's, yeah, I, course, I yeah. Was, it's interesting. I was told the same kind of things because I took organ lessons, actually, uh, starting last year through this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. And even now, people were telling me, oh, you got to be careful because <laughs> it's going to mess with your piano technique. Watch out. Yeah. I thought, what? <laughs> yeah, watch out. You <laughs> might make How? money. No, it... it yeah. Just the opposite. It it yeah. changed the way that I look at piano music, and it added to it because you can't you don't have your sustain pedal, so you got to hold your fingers a little differently. And I was like, oh, yeah. that that would work really well for this piece. Yeah, quite the opposite. Like like you said, 
And it's cool because you are one of the classical musicians who, who branched out. So when people find that out and they see you do other things, it's kind of a nice surprise. They're like, oh, you can do that too. I didn't know you could do that too. Right. I find that in my case because there's sort of a stereotype that mm-hmm. classical musicians can only do one thing. Right. It's a stereotype that's uh, kind of based on a little bit of sad truth, but there are yeah. a surprising number of people. I'm realizing more and more that, that do branch out, but they're almost like ashamed of it or they kind of keep yeah. it hidden. Like, well, I'm not supposed to be doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're doing something wrong. Like we talked about before, I don't know exactly why that is, but I mean, I think it comes down to what you are interested in. I mean, if you're really only interested in studying, you know, music before a certain era or music after a certain era, mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah, if you like that. Yeah, but don't limit yourself because this is what I found. You know, I mean, I'm only 30, and I say that carefully because <laughs> you know I would like to think I'm only 30, not already 30, mm-hmm. but. Um, 30 is the new 20, man. <laughs> yeah, but basically, I, and I've talked to much older people um, and that I respect a lot about this, and they all agree that you never feel accomplished. You know, you, your never. goals, you achieve your goals along the way. You know, there's no goal that you, you know, achieve at the end. You know, m- maybe death, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> if, that's a, if, yeah. if that's your goal, because your goals change, you achieve them along the way, and your priorities change. And I'm not saying that you should settle down and do this, this. It's just natural. Like once you have achieved this goal, you get new goals. I mean, if you don't, uh, I feel like something's wrong with your uh, <laughs> you know, learning yeah. methods. It's, but, it's cliche, but it is the journey. Yeah. The stuff you find along the way. Yeah, because when you walk into a museum, I recently went to a museum in Montreal, and I realized I really like this guy's painting. But if I just look at all his painting and then I say, okay, I'm done with paintings now, you know, no, I, I get interested in other paintings and other, you know, other arts. That's the beauty of it. You learn more about other things and you learn about this. So I think that's one thing I love about being in music is that there's never a shortage of things to learn. You're always learning. And also with teaching, you're always learning. Uh, also with the repair, I do instrument repair. Mm. Always learning. There's always different ways to do the same thing and different, uh, slightly different results. So it's really trial and error and your preferences. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's not a bad thing. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you have too many interests, like I do, I mean, if you get lost your whole life, that's also not good. But explore as, you know, as ferociously as you can. And then I think things will kind of clear up a little bit. At least for me, I have to get in there and mess everything up. And then just kind of, that's how I see clarity anyway. I can't just know from the beginning, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not been me. You know, some people, maybe not me. I think you said that better than I could have said that. So now let's wrap up the program by hearing some of the music that comes from these multiple influences. This is a track by the artist Gadadu, featuring Tony Park on clarinet. It's spelled G-A-D-A-D-U. You can find them on gadadu.com or on their YouTube page, Gadadu Music. This track is called Makeshift Constellations. 
Yeah.